Let's say it. There's no obstacle so big that God cannot move it. My God is bigger than my obstacle. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Joshua chapter 1, and then we'll be in Joshua chapter 5. And uh, I want us to look at the proper prayer posture. Now, we see images of prayer, but I want us to look at the heart, the posture of the heart, and then we'll come to some practical applications at the end. But I, I love the book of Joshua. It's my favorite book in the Old Testament. Uh, when I did a biblical personality profile, it turned out that uh, my personality most matched the personality of Joshua, which means if you get in my way, I'm going to fight a battle and, and I'm going to take the land. That's some of you are scared to death of that, but, uh, but you know, why let the negative decide where you spend your life? Joshua said, I'm not going to let the negative people decide where I spend my life. I'm going to decide to live according to the promises of God. So when you look at Joshua, you see a man who walks in victory, who understands spiritual battles, who understands obstacles and adversity, who is surrounded for 40 years by people who said, God can't do that. He's not big enough to do that. And yet God could and he did. So when we see the book of Joshua, we see how to battle the world, the flesh, and the devil. So let's look at his backstory. Joshua is a picture, if you will, uh, a, a metaphor of how we move from a wilderness, up and down, defeated life to a life of victory in Christ. It is a picture of the victorious life. It does not mean that the victorious life is without battles. There are battles in this life. We're not going to have any battles when we get to heaven, but until we get there, we're going to have struggles and battles, and the enemy is going to come after us on a constant and surprising sometimes way. And so Joshua is a picture of life with its trials and with its battles. In the book of Joshua, God gave the people a land. In the New Testament, God gives us life in the Holy Spirit. They got a land, we get a life. It's a picture of victory for us. And so Joshua chapter 1 and verse 5, remember Moses has died, Verse 5, no man, God is speaking to Joshua now. He's been using Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Now we come to Joshua. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Some of you need to underline that in your Bible because you think he will. He says he won't. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Now, you've got Joshua 1. I want you to turn a couple of pages, Joshua 5. We're going to be there in just a minute. But based on Joshua 1, you need to understand a principle. The very promise reveals there is no victory without a battle. The very promise that I will be with you and I will not forsake you 
is an implication that there is going to be a battle, but there is victory in the battle. While we have victory in Christ, and it's promised to us, we have to appropriate it on a daily basis. We have to deny ourselves and appropriate what God has done and what God has promised us on a daily basis to see this victory that the Bible so clearly talks about. Forty years before, now you talk about a guy that had to put up with a lot of stuff. Forty years before, a negative report. Sent out 12 spies, the only time God ever picked a committee. After that, he said, no more committees. Uh, the committee, overwhelming majority of the committee came back and said, we can't do this. It's not possible. There are giants in the land. Joshua and Caleb are the only two names that you know from that committee of 12. Why? Because they believe God. This negative report came back, and now Joshua has come to the land after 40 years. That generation has died off. They're in the land, but they've got this obstacle in front of them. Just as big as the giants were 40 years ago, there's Jericho, this insurmountable, unconquerable city that stands right across the border of the River Jordan. And they are facing it, and there's no way around it. But what God does in front of Jericho, now you think about this guy, he doesn't have tanks, he doesn't have an air force, he doesn't have a navy, he does, he's just got people that have wandered in the wilderness with limited resources and limited tools. The walls are 300 feet thick, that's the size of a football field, and they're 60 feet wide. No way that this group of ragtag people are going to get around it or through it. It's another obstacle. It's a major obstacle. But here's what God has done in Joshua's heart. He has reminded Joshua of every time he has sustained him, he has fed the people, he has provided water, he has given victory, they've crossed over. He's reminded him of all of that and said, Joshua, just one more battle, just one more test. Not any bigger, not any harder than any other, but it's one you're going to have to trust me in. It's another battle. Now you think about Joshua. You just think about the odds that were against him. He was born into slavery in Egypt with no thought that there was any way out of slavery. Yet he had been a witness to God's deliverance. God had taken a weak people and delivered them from the most powerful nation in the world. The impossible became possible. He had seen multiple miracles. He had been there at the parting of the Red Sea. He had been there every day for 40 years when God provided the manna. He had been there when the water came from the rock. He was a soldier. He was disciplined in his life. When the spies came back with a bad report, he brought a good report. He served under Moses. He understood, this is important, what it meant to be a person who lived under authority. Now that's important for Joshua 5. Because if Joshua had been a I have a better idea person, he wouldn't have been the man that he was when we get to Joshua 5. 
He was under Moses' authority and devoted to him. And he didn't look back. He looked forward. Now here's where Joshua lives out Manly Beasley's definition of faith. Remember the definition? Faith is believing that it's so when it is not so, so that it will be so because God said so. Faith is believing that it is so when it is not so, so that it will be so. Why? Because you feel like it ought to be so? No, because God said so. This is a standing faith on the promises of God. Now here's the danger for all of us. Our prayers can be influenced by people who don't pray and don't want us to pray. Your prayer life, your faith walk, can be influenced by people who are of the negative report tribe. They always tell you why you can't and why you shouldn't and why we must not. They have a negative report. And if you listen to them, you'll stop praying and you'll stop believing. And when you do that, you'll just wander in a wilderness for the rest of your life. But if you listen to God, you will pray and you will believe in spite of circumstances, in spite of obstacles, because you've read the word and God has the last word. He always has the last word. And so I want you to take note of what the Bible says about Joshua. You can just write down the references. Deuteronomy 34, 9 says he was filled with the spirit of wisdom. One of the things we ought to pray is that God would fill us with the spirit of wisdom. Not just knowledge, wisdom. To know how to think and how to think the right way. Secondly, Joshua 1.5, he was blessed with the presence of God. Now, the presence of God was around and on Joshua, but it is in us through the Holy Spirit. We've got something Joshua never had, the indwelling Holy Spirit. And if he would believe God, knowing that God was around him and on him and speaking to him, how much more should we believe God? Because the Spirit of God bears witness inside of us. Thirdly, Joshua 1.8, he was a student of the Bible. You see, it's hard to believe the promises of God if you don't know what they are. And the pages of Scripture are filled with thousands of promises of God. Some of them are specifically to the Jewish nation and will be fulfilled at a later day even. But many of them are for us in the New Covenant in our relationship with Christ on a daily basis. Numbers 32 and verse 12, he was obedient to the will of God. He was obedient to the will of God. Now add to that, add to that, that with Abraham and Moses and Samuel and Elijah and Nehemiah and Isaac and Jeremiah, Joshua is considered a man of prayer. When you look at his life, it is marked by prayer and one event is marked by time when he didn't pray, when he made a covenant with a group of people that deceived him into making a covenant, and it was a prayerless decision on Joshua's part that he lived with for the rest of his life. 
But here's the deal. If we want much of God, we must be much with God. If we want much of God, we must be much with God. Look at his evaluation of the situation. We're in Joshua 5. Let's pick up in verse 13. Now when it came about, when Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. Rather, I indeed come now as captain of the Lord of hosts. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, he's before Jericho, which means he's outside the wall. He's not considered a threat by anybody. He's one man out there alone, evaluating, determining what's going to happen, how to best deal with this. But he encounters a man, someone he's never seen before, and he calls a question because there's an obvious article, uh, obstacle, not just the wall, but this man. Is this man for us, or is he one of our adversaries? I can't go around this wall. Now I'm here face to face with someone I do not know, and I don't know if he's for me or against me. This is a serious confrontation that's going on. Now, here's what Joshua knows. His people do not have the experiences or the equipment to handle this city. They don't have the experiences or the equipment. By the way, the same could be true of us. We don't have the experiences or the equipment. God does. God has the experience and God has the equipment to face this city and what we need to do to reach this city for Christ. Joshua has seen God deliver the nations. God has seen, he has seen God feed the millions. Now here's one more test. Now just by Joshua 5, write Ephesians 3.20. Just write Ephesians 3.20 because the book of Joshua and the book of Ephesians, Ephesians is to the New Testament what Joshua is to the Old Testament. <clears throat> Here's what Joshua 3.20 says. We've used this verse a lot around here. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, According to the power that works within us, that's the Holy Spirit, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. His power, his strength, his glory, that's where it comes from. If we want to have the right prayer posture, it's his power, it's his strength, and it is for his glory. 
Otherwise, it's our power. You're not powerful enough. It's our strength. You're going to grow weary. And it's for our glory, and God shares his glory with no one. So this is where we stand before the captain of the lords of hosts. If we want to show the next generation what a praying church looks like, we need to understand what Joshua learned, and we need to understand this principle in Ephesians 3.20. While I was uh, on medical sabbatical, I uh, read Priscilla Shire's book, God is Able. And she spends a whole chapter in that book on the first word of Ephesians 3.20, now. You know, every word has, there's no word that's wasted in the Bible. Now. Well, what now? This now. Now to him who is able, not almost able, not sometimes able, not occasionally able, now to him who is able. Now, read this, what she, what she said in this chapter. The reason we need to concentrate so hard on this first word is because our thoughts are usually all over the place. Backwards, forwards, what if, what's next, how come, where to, why not. Get everything out of your head except now. Can you do anything about tomorrow? Today. Today's the day of salvation. If you need to be saved, today's the day to come to Jesus. Today's the day to walk by faith. Today, it's now. It's here. It's in this moment. It's not later on. What we do with God now is essential and is important. So in light of where you are, your marriage, your finances, your health, your job, your family, right now, how should you be praying? In the now, in the moment, in the here and now. How should you pray? It, so if you evaluate your now, where you are right now, what you brought with you in your head and in your heart, in your surroundings, in your family, in your job, and everything. What you brought with you when you came to church today is going to be there when you walk out of church today. So in your now, where is God? It's a really good question. Is he the last resort? Is he a possible consideration? Do you think that he's not capable of doing what you need done in the now? Are you sure that he's interested in you? Do you think he's available in the now for everybody but you? Or for every situation but yours? Some of you walked in, if you're really, really honest, some of you walked in today and you aren't real sure that God is with you in the now, the right now. Oh, he was in the past because, you know, yeah, I remember when he answered that prayer. I can remember when he met that need. Listen, those are steps to walk up and build on. They're not just memories to hold. 
They are platforms on which you take the next step of faith. What God did in the past, he can do in the present, and he will do in the future. He is the same, what? Yesterday, today, and forever. Now that's either true or if it's not. If it's not true, let's just all pack it up. But if it is true, let's live like it. And more importantly, let's pray like it. So you ought to write a little note in the margin by Ephesians 3 or by Joshua now or later on. Am I looking for God in my now? In what I'm dealing with right now, am I looking for God in my now? Because he's standing as the captain of the Lord of hosts, waiting to tell you how to find victory in your now. There's the evident surrender of self. Now, Joshua's in charge. I mean, God's left him in charge. He's in charge. But he realizes there's someone else there. This is what we would call a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. There are several times in the scriptures before God came in flesh in Jesus Christ that there is a pre-incarnate appearance. It gives us an idea of what God is like. And he appeared to certain people at certain times. And now he appears as captain of the Lord of hosts. He'd appeared to Abraham. He appeared to Jacob. He wrestled with Jacob. Now he appears to Joshua. Here's what you need to understand. God will show up when you need him, in the way you need him, in the way he determines you need to see him. He'll show up when you need him, in the way you need him. And he'll determine what that looks like. It will never be inconsistent with the revealed word of God. It will always be consistent with the nature of Christ and with the revealed word of God. So here's what God tells him. There there are three would nots. They're not going to come up on the screen. I had two until this morning. Now I have three. By the second service, I may have 12. Who knows? First of all, Joshua would not be alone. In your now, you are not alone. Joshua would not be alone. Secondly, he would not be in charge. That's hard for us because we like to run our lives and be the captain of our own ships. But he would not be in charge. The captain of the Lord of hosts was going to be in charge. And thirdly, he wouldn't have to figure it out. How much time do you spend like I spend? I've got got to figure this out. What is it God wants me to do? And God's got a plan. And listen, when God reveals his plan about how they're going to take Jericho, there's no way if we could read between the lines that Joshua ever said, march around, march around, blow trumpets, walls fall down. 
There's no way Joshua ever said, that makes sense. There's no way. I mean, somebody said, are you sure you heard from God or did you just eat a lot of spicy food yesterday? He wouldn't be in charge and he wouldn't have to figure it out. Here's the would. He would have to do what God said. He would have to do what God said, or that wall wasn't going to come down. You see, if we want the wall to come down in our now, we've got to do what God says. That's the only way it's ever coming down. Whatever it is, God's going to show us how we are to face the now. So we go forward on the promises of God. Psalms 46, 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Exodus 15, 3, I love this passage. I think, I think uh, Joshua may have known this passage. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. And the choices of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deeps cover them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, by the way, anytime you see the right hand mentioned about the Lord, it's the hand of power, it's the hand of authority. Your right hand, your hand of power, your hand of authority, your hand to make things happen. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And in greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. So, past victories, present hope. You got it? Past victories, present hope. Why? Because I remember the God of the past victories. Well, that's old news. That's 40 years ago. Well, if God can drown the most powerful army in the world in the Red Sea, he can deal with one town with an insurmountable wall. Past victories, present hope. Uh, just, just a side note, Joshua knew Moses had met God on the mountain and in the tent. But now Joshua is having his own personal encounter with God. Listen, don't face your now on someone else's faith. You have to face your now in your own faith. I don't have a lot of faith. All you got to have is the size of a grain of mustard seed. If I had a mustard seed on the end of my finger right now, you couldn't see it. And God says, all you got to have is that much faith. You got that much faith. You sat down in that chair when you came in. You didn't check to see if the bolts had been undone. You just sat down. Why is it we put greater faith in the chair we sit in than in the God who sits on the throne? Present faith. Josh is having his personal encounter. 
And I don't know, this just hit me early this morning. If I'm going to have present faith, and if it's going to be my faith, I have to review what God has done. I have to remember what he has done. And I have to respond accordingly to what he has done. I have to review what he's done. I have to remember what he's done. And I have to respond accordingly to what he's done. So what did Joshua do? What was his proper response? Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, what has my Lord to say to his servant? In other words, what orders do you have to give? What are you commanding me to do? Two things here. Public victories are won in private. Public victories are won in private. Secondly, submission to sovereignty is the key. Submission to sovereignty is the key. Watchman Nee said, not until we take the place of a servant can he take his place as Lord. The posture of prayer is to be aware that we are in the presence of Almighty God. Prayer is not about something to someone somewhere. Prayer is a conversation with a sovereign God who holds all things in his hands. You see, if we're going to have public victories, one in private, then we have to move beyond praying for nothing in particular to no one in particular to nowhere in particular and realize that we are on holy ground. Now, put yourself in Joshua's shoes. He's in enemy territory. Now, God has promised them the land, but they haven't taken the land yet. They've just crossed the river. He's in enemy territory, but it's God's land, and so it's holy ground. It's God's land. The people of Jericho think it's their land. God says, it's my land. And I will give it to my people. And so he's on enemy territory, but he's on conquered soil. It's already in the sovereign mind of God, their land. There are battles to fight. There are borders to be reached. But it is already in the mind of God, the land of the people of promise. So if it's conquered ground, then you're not standing trying to figure out if you can have victory. You're standing determining how is God going to provide the victory and how can I cooperate with him? I like what Warren Wiersbe says about these verses. First, humble worship, then holy walk, then heavenly warfare. There are the spiritual postures found in Ephesians. You see, we stand tallest when we kneel physically. And when we are in the presence of God, 
we find the battle plan. Now, some of you are going to have to think about this one. And I have to think about it a lot. Reverence is the waiting room before you can get to the throne room. You see, if I want to get into the presence of God, I go understanding I'm on holy ground. I don't strut there. I kneel there. He lifted up his eyes. He fell on his face. Genesis 17, when Abraham fell on his face, God talked to him. Daniel 10, 9, Daniel was on his face when the Lord spoke to him. Joshua said, what has my Lord to say to his servant? Let me tell you what some other translations do with that. Some say, what do you want me to do? What does my Lord have to say? Sir, what do you want to tell me? Lord, give me your commands. You see, the greatest danger in our prayer life is a posture of self-confidence. Thinking that we can advise God on how he needs to work. You know what God does every time you give him advice? <laughs> he just... He's got to laugh because he knows you and he knows me. And my greatest thought can't meet his most minute thought. Our self-confidence is no help to God. It is in our weakness that we are strong. It is when we are humble that we find the strength to stand in the battle in a strength that is not our own. I'm going to give you another one. You need to write it down or take a picture of it on the IMAG one. No one ever leaves the presence of Jesus empty except the person full of themselves. No one ever leaves the presence of Jesus empty except the person full of themselves. The Bible says, and Joshua did so. He did what God said. Humility led to reverence and reverence led to obedience. In Joshua 11, verse 15, it says, just as the Lord had commanded Moses' servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did he left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Thus Joshua took all the land. Now just write that reference down and look at it later. Joshua 11, 15, and 16. He left nothing undone. Folks, we ought to live in such a way that when we die, we leave nothing undone that God has commanded us to do. Because if we keep going in our self-sufficiency, there's a lot that won't get done. And how do we hear well done if we've not done what God commanded us to do? We always say, oh, well done, good and faithful service, but well done means you've done what he said you were supposed to do. 
God put you on this planet for a purpose. And every calling on your life is a call of God. To be a dad, to be a mom, to be a spouse, to do the vocation that God has called you to do, to be a neighbor, whatever it is, it is God's call on your life to do it for the glory of God. I said to someone this week standing in my driveway, Ron Dunn used to say, you ought to wash dishes to the glory of God. I said, well, that doesn't sound very spiritual. Hey, you're serving your family, you're serving the Lord. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That's what the Bible says. So whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. In your now, do it for the glory of God so that you can one day you're well done, good and faithful servant. Now, what's the posture? Very quickly. The posture of prayer is to see the Lord. To see the Lord. I'm going to ask the praise team to come on up and uh, we'll make sure you get all the points. But um, In prayer, I need to see the Lord. What does that mean? I need to see God as bigger than my problem or my now. If all I see is my problem, I can't see the Lord. Secondly, I need to sense the Lord's presence. Which means, by the way, don't do all the talking. Don't do all the talking. If you want to sense the Lord's presence... You need to be still and know that he is God. Sometimes the greatest praying you'll ever do, you'll never say a word. It will just be God flooding your heart with reminders that he is sovereign. That'll be all it'll be. It'll be one of the best prayer times you ever have. Thirdly, to humble ourselves. What would you have your servant do? God, I'm here. I've got this day. I've got this now. What will you have your servant do? Humble yourselves. Walk reverently. Walk reverently. Joshua did not go back to the people and say, I've got a plan. He went back to the people with God's plan. And God's plan is successful. And finally, get up and do what he says. Get up and do what he says. The praise team's going to sing, but here's your get up moment. I'm going to invite you to bring your now to this altar so as we stand whatever your now is that you need to bring to God I'm going to invite you to come to this altar and bring your now to God let's stand you step out and come and bring him your now in this moment as you come to the altar